Well, happy Father's Day. Do you guys want to know how my Father's Day began? 5 a.m., Oliver's foot underneath my chin. He's laying on top of the blanket, so I can't adjust them. I'm cold. I know if I move and uncover his foot, his foot will get cold and he'll start crying. And I'm uncomfortable, I'm aching, one of my arms is asleep, but I can't move. Because this little two-year-old tyrant has decided to sleep east-west rather than north-south like a normal human being. And so I lay there in the darkness looking at him, and I just love him. <laughs> uh, it's a mysterious thing that you can love someone who causes you so, so much discomfort. But my heart just swelled uh, with love for my little boy. And guys, it is Father's Day. And this morning, just as we took time on Mother's Day to encourage the moms in our midst and their unique calling before the Lord, uh, we want to this morning um, focus on God's Word in a way that I hope will be a blessing to the dads that are here. Um, we're going to find our text. This is part of our series through the parables of Jesus, and he has a parable that's just so on point. It's probably the text most often preached on Father's Day sermons around the country. It's the parable of the prodigal son. You find that in Luke chapter 15. Um, I'm going to begin at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to the parable itself in verses 11 through 32. So Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then we're going to skip over some verses. Verses 3 through 7 contains another parable, the parable of the lost sheep. And then verses 8 through 11 have the parable of the lost coin. And then we come to this parable in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, "'How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger.' I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, 
and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And we'll stop right there. Easily one of the most famous and well known of Jesus' parables. And it's easy to see why. Anybody who has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, who has put their trust in Jesus for salvation, you cannot read this parable and not see yourself in it. This is true for everyone who has come out of, come to an awareness that their Father in Christ has welcomed them back home. We all see ourselves in this story. J.C. Ryle once said of Luke chapter 15, there is probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. And again, this is probably the text most often taught on Father's Day from pulpits around the country. But it was not, in its original telling, meant for that purpose. Uh, It contains, for sure, some helpful and challenging lessons for dads, and we'll get to that at the end of our time. But before we can get to that, which is kind of a, a side application of this text, We have to first get to its uh, original telling. What what did Jesus mean when he first told this parable? And really, when he told this parable the first time, Jesus was speaking to sons, not dads. And the lesson he hoped to impart was for sons, not dads. Now, some of you of the XX chromosome variety might be wondering, why sons, not daughters? Uh, Sons in Jewish culture and many other ancient cultures were the one who received the inheritance. Property and wealth was not passed on to daughters. And in Jewish culture, slaves and foreigners also could not inherit. So those were three classes of human beings in that culture at that time that could not inherit from the father's home. If you were a daughter, or if you were a slave, or if you were a foreigner... Property and wealth would not be passed on to you. So we see the significance then when God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, wrote in Galatians 3, Paul writing to a mixed audience of foreigners and women and slaves. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Do you see what he's saying? Ladies, daughters, you are sons. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Obviously, he is not undoing the classifications of male and female or different ethnicities or any of that. What he is saying is that you, everyone is entitled to inherit from the Father. You are all legally sons. So by making sons the focus of his parable, Jesus is not limiting God's blessing or the meaning of this parable to one gender, obviously not. By describing Christians as sons, whether they be men or women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, the Bible is saying that all people could equally claim this glorious inheritance by grace through faith as an offspring of the promises, sons of God. But still, this is a parable about sonship. That's what this is about. More than about fatherhood, it's about, I don't know, is sonship a word? Sonhood? <laughs> I think that's a word. Sonship, I think. This chapter begins, and this is very important to see, the first couple verses of the chapter begins with the scribes and Pharisees looking on as Jesus ministered to the outcasts and the undesirables of society. The scribes and Pharisees describe the people who were thronging to Jesus as sinners, which tells you not only how they viewed those people, but more importantly, it tells us how they viewed themselves. You can't say, these sinners, without at the same time, in its inverse, saying, I'm one of the good ones. <laughs> if you describe others as these wretched sinners, you are implying that you are righteous. And I want you to understand something about these men who are full of such harsh judgments and who feel no pity for the plight of others, especially if they suspect those people brought their suffering onto themselves through sinful living. These men don't see others as Jesus sees them because... Not because they don't see those other people clearly, those other people in their faults. It's not that. They don't yet see themselves as they truly are. This is their problem. These men don't see others as Jesus sees them because they have not yet been helped to see themselves as they truly are. And that is the point of this parable that we're studying this morning. Jesus wants to help these men see themselves more clearly. So he's going to tell a story that will confront them over the fact that with arrogant contempt, they look on these people as undeserving sinners, which means, by inference, they look on themselves as the righteous who deserve something. Jesus did not despise the sinners who drew near to him. He loved them. He valued them highly. It was for such as these that he came into the world. And he's delighted that they've come to him. But others stand off to the side grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. They looked on these people who were drawing near to Jesus, not with joy at their turning or compassion, but again with this sort of arrogant contempt. The ick factor was high. 
The gospel, when it's rightly understood and embraced, it just destroys all human pretense or any notion of human superiority. The gospel, when it's embraced in all its trueness, it cannot, it cannot coexist with an air of human superiority over others. Because what, what have you done to deserve what God did for you? Well, the answer is nothing. Nothing. We are not a remarkable people. We worship a remarkable God. And so, yeah, it does. The gospel trains us uh, to undersee ourselves correctly and thereby look upon others differently. That's part of what it does. But here's how the story breaks down. This man, he's very wealthy. He has two sons. His younger son makes a shocking request. He comes to his dad and says, essentially, you're very rich. Let's just pretend you already died. I want my share. I mean, in any culture, in any day, this is an appalling thing to say to your father. I want half your estate, like what would be coming to me if you had died. Let's just pretend that happened already. I want out of here. The shocking thing, of course, here is that he's saying... To his dad, I don't want you, I want your stuff. And in fact, you're in the way of me getting my stuff. Do I really have to wait for you to die? Just give it to me now. What a shocking thing to say. My kids will never say this because I'm poor. But, <laughs> but if they ever did come and say, I want half of your 2010 Jeep Cherokee, I'd be like, well, half of it's about to fall off anyway. You can have it. You just give it a good wrench, it's yours. Actually, it's a Jeep Compass, I'm, I lied. I was trying to sound more classy than I am. <laughs> so this is a shocking request. It's appalling, it's dishonorable. He gives him the money. He, just a couple days later, the parable says, he takes off. And then through folly, he blows right through the money He's got nothing left. He's in need, desperately in need. A famine arises in the land. The first thing he tries to do is to meet his needs himself. He tries to get a job. He's tending swine. It's not going great. He even at the lowest moment is like looking at the pig food going, maybe I'll try it. <laughs> and then in this absolute bottom, bottomed out moment, he goes, you know what? I mean, even the servants in my dad's house have it better than I have here. What if I just go back and I submit an application? I say, Dad, I, I knew, I, I mean, I can't even call you Dad. Mr., Sir, can I just work for you? That would be better than this. So he hatches this plan. And when he comes, very importantly, he says, I sinned. I sinned against heaven, against you. I'm not worthy. Will you please have me back on contract terms as an employee? I know I can't be your son anymore. And the father, surprisingly, sees him coming, and he runs and embraces him. And then there are some cultural things that we're not... Aren't, aren't as uh, aware of. 
But when he puts a ring on his finger and, and, and a, you know, he clothes him, these are all signs not just of acceptance, but restoration. He is, in fact, giving his son back his inheritance. He's back in the will. This is an amazing thing. And something that should stand out to all of us who have put our trust in Jesus for salvation, all of us, like this prodigal son, in sinning, we said, I want to be free of you, Dad. (laughs) And then we went off. We wanted to be blessed but independent of God. We found ourselves in desperate need, unable to meet the great need of our souls in our own power. And so, yeah, we came back to Jesus, came back to God, the Father. And he amazingly clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus. He restored us, reconciled us, brought us back home. This is an amazing moment, and what a beautiful picture of this we see. If you ever want to know God's heart for you, sinner, look at this figure of this man running to embrace his son and kiss him and welcome him home. He is not distant or disapproving. He does not hate you. He longs to have you home and to welcome you back. There's celebration, a big party. They kill the fatted calf. There's music. People are laughing, yucking it up. It's amazing. His oldest son is coming in from the fields. He hears all of this uproar. He's like, what's this hurly-burly? What's going on? He says, calls the household servant. What, what is, what's going on? He says, your youngest, your brother came home, and your dad's throwing a big party. And he feels enraged. He's so angry. This is so unjust. There are two sons in this story, not one. The prodigal son gets all the print. But Jesus told this story to highlight the second son. At the beginning of this story, neither one of these sons had a loving relationship with their father. The younger son saw him as a resource to be mined, and the elder saw him as a taskmaster that made him serve the fields. However, by the end of the story, one of these two sons has truly become a son who credited his standing in the father's house to his father's goodness. While the other son, the older one, persists in thinking of his dad as a taskmaster who owes him something. If the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, which come immediately before this, uh, if you're not not familiar with those parables, set set some time aside this week to read them. The parable of the lost sheep, a man owns a hundred sheep, one of them wanders off and gets lost. So he leaves the 99 behind, he goes... He finds the lost sheep. He brings it home. There's celebration. Parable of the lost coin. A coin gets lost. Turn the house upside down, sweeping, looking under everything, finds the lost coin, and celebrates. 
If those two parables serve to illustrate what Jesus was doing with sinners, okay, when they said, look at this man, he eats with these yucky people. What's he doing with them? Jesus is explaining in those two parables what he's doing with these sinners, that he's searching for a precious thing that was lost, that went astray. And then the parable of the prodigal son shows Jesus explaining what he's doing with these Pharisees. He turns it around on them. They say, what's he doing with these sinners? And Jesus is saying, let me tell you what I'm doing with you. (laughs) And that's why he tells the parable of the prodigal son. It says that the older brother was angry and refused to go in. Have you refused to go in? Think about that in light of the meaning of this parable. Refused to go in where? To the Father's house. They refused to enter into the blessing and the favor, the safety, the provision. They're so angry, they are standing outside of the inheritance. He says, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Please notice here a couple things. He's no different than his younger brother. He wants his dad's stuff. You never gave me your stuff. Not only that, but listen to his language. I served you. I obeyed your commands. Guys, that's not son talk, that's slave talk. You see, he views his dad in this master-slave relationship. These Pharisees looked on the sinners and they said they are undeserving, which, by inference, they're looking on themselves as deserving. They feel they've earned. Dad, you got to give me your stuff. The problem is that the older brother related to his father in this slave-master kind of way, not as a son to a father. In his mind, his father was a command-giver, and he was a command-keeper. And therefore, what he felt he was owed was the foundation of the relationship, and therefore, undeserved blessings to others made him angry. Made him very angry. However, this is one of those rare instances in our Bibles where Jesus is going to speak in a tender way to these hard men. We have lots of other examples where Jesus has hard words for these guys, these scribes and Pharisees. But here he's going to speak to them as sons who are wrong-headed and wrong-hearted, but beloved says, his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, and we already read that part. I love this part, though, when it says, but when this son of yours came, do you see what he's done to his brother? This son of yours, he's disowned him. That guy had nothing to do with him. I love, though, that at the end of the parable, his father turns it back. In verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead 
Ah, that's a striking moment in the parable. He says, this son of yours. And he says, he's your brother. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. John Piper said of this eldest brother that although the father said that his oldest son was always with him, that this was not precious to him. Remember, the, old, the father said to his son, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But this fact that he was with the father is no more precious to this oldest son than it was to the first son who said, I want my inheritance early as though you were already dead. Being with the father for supper, running the estate together, being with him, none of this was a joy. It seems that perhaps, again, the elder son really loved what the younger son used to love, his stuff. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Luke 16, 14, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. So these men really wanted to party with their friends, not with the Father. Piper continues, The Father says, All that is mine is yours. My child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. There is a massive inheritance coming. And the father only hints at the condition. Says, child, all that I have is yours. Jesus leaves unsaid the possibility that the elder son will remain forever on the porch with the slaves rather than sit at the table of mercy as a grateful child, a son. He leaves unmentioned what he said in Matthew 15. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. But not here, says Piper, not in this parable. Here it is all tenderness toward the Pharisees. The message of the parable ends with tenderness to both brothers. Come in from the foreign country of misery, and come in from the porch of hard-earned merit. Both are deadly, but inside is the banquet of grace and forgiveness and fellowship with an all-satisfying Father. One of the things I think is really hard for us to grasp about the infinitude of God, infinitude, just you know, the, unending, the incredible, unending richness of who He is. My kids, let's say I did have an inheritance, they would be looking at a finite amount of dollars. And with every child I had, that cut their portion down, Right? So let's say I had $100, which I know it's exaggerated. <laughs> but let's say I did. You know, say, oh, I should have chosen an easy number, one that's divisible by six. 120, okay. Thanks, Bill. Which I think is 20 each, right? Yeah. I was never good at figuring and such. If I had a seventh child, oh, now we're in trouble. I'd have to get out my calculator, but it's less money. One of the things about these Pharisees, I think, don't grasp about God. They not only have an exaggerated view of themselves and their own capacity, but they, I, you can't exaggerate the importance and significance of man without in some, in some way making God smaller than he is. God is so vast. He is so infinite that the more people who come to him, there's not less of him to go around. 
It's not, his inheritance does not work in this way. I, I, I think that's hard for human minds to grasp. It's like, man, if more people come into God's riches and inheritance, yeah, maybe, that's, maybe that'll equal out to less for me. Not so. Not so. And that's part of this thing where, like, when he comes home and God get, puts him back in the will, does that mean there's less? No, does not. That's not how God's infinite riches work. I want us to notice this. Like the younger brother earlier, this elder brother has lost any sense of sonship. He sees himself as a servant. He's outside the house because of his law-keeping and his obedience. He said, I never disobeyed your commands. He's outside not because of wickedness, but because of his sense of having earned through law-keeping something. Like the younger brother, this elder brother also wants the father's stuff. The elder brother disowns the younger brother. He accuses the father of playing favorites. The parable ends with both the father and the elder brother outside the party, the father urging his oldest to come in and join. And we're left wondering what the eldest son will do, which is precisely where the weight of this parable is meant to land. The ball's in your court, Pharisees. Will you enter into the blessings, or will you, in a hard-hearted way, remain outside looking in? That is precisely where Jesus wanted in its original telling for this parable to land. However, having now arrived and done justice to what I think is the main point of this parable, let me just quickly, in the end here, draw from this some things that I hope will encourage some of you dads in your calling. One thing I want you very much to see, dads, is this. The father moved toward his wayward sons. He went seeking for them. And you might say, that's not true. What about the prodigal son? (laughs) Prodigal son, he let go his way to destruction, let him taste the error of his ways, and then his son decided to come back. And only when he was very nearly home did the father then go and pursue them. Again, I'd say to you, the main person that this parable is targeted towards is the eldest brother, the Pharisees. Remember, when we're talking about parables, parables usually have one main point. It's not like an allegory where every detail is laden with meaning and significance. A parable is meant to convey one or two big ideas, and you can get off in the weeds by attaching significance to a lot of other details. The main audience for this parable are these hard-hearted Pharisees. And when the Pharisee, the older brother who represents them, is standing outside of the house angry refusing to come in. He is not drawing near to the father. Who makes the move? It's the father. The father comes outside to him. And this fits with the earlier two parables, by the way. The parable of the lost sheep. Does the sheep start back to the fold on its own? No. 
It's lost. It's hopelessly gone. But the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find it. When the coin is lost, there again we see the the mistress of the house cleaning and looking for it. One of the big things to take away from these parables about our God is He is the God who seeks us out. He is the God who comes to us. And I'm aware, because I've lived on planet Earth in the midst of broken relationships, that very often, when something is horribly broken, we go, I, I'm, yeah, I, if they wanted to come and talk to me, I'd talk to them, but I'm not going to go to them. <laughs> It's broken, it's horribly wrong. I hope someday they come to their senses and come back around. I want us to see this here, dads. The father went to his son. The father pursued his son. And we see this in all three of these parables. So that's one thing, is that the father moved toward his wayward sons. Also, the second thing to see here, dads, is that the father desires the heart of his child, not certain behaviors. Remember, this, dad, this son, in relationship to his dad, views him in this servant-taskmaster kind of relationship. He says, I've always obeyed your commands, which means, I think, quite possibly, that the dad could have come out and said, get in the house. What are you doing acting this way? He's your brother. Get in there, put on a smile, and make him feel welcome. He could have done that, and I think his older son would have complied, quite possibly. That's the dynamic that at least as far as his son sees. But look at this. It says that he went and entreated him. Entreated. That word is the opposite of command. That word entreat is coming out and making an appeal on the basis of what he wants. And this is the opposite of the dynamic that his son claims that they have. And it reminds me of our study in Philemon from several months ago. Remember Paul writes to Philemon about a difficult matter and he says this in verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Dads, you might be able to compel certain behaviors out of your children. You might be able to command it. And maybe sometimes that's what's required of you. But I I think we should try as much as possible as dads to pursue not compliance in a behavioral way, but to appeal to the hearts of our children. And again, the example I use so often, maybe too often, is you might be able to compel your child to come and be present with you at church today, but don't you want them to want to be here? (laughs) Don't you want them to come to church if you didn't? And that's what this father does. He comes out to appeal to his son, not to command him. He is pursuing the heart of his child, not trying to change his outward behavior to fit in in a way that he thinks it ought to look. 
These words remind me of another passage, Psalm 32, 8, be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. That's God talking to us from his word. His desire is for you to want to be near him. Don't make me correct you in a painful way. Please, I want you from your own heart to come and be near me. Don't be like that. Something else here, by the way, when he is pursuing the heart of his child, this is something that he personally models what he asks of his son. This is a very important point. He doesn't come out to his son. His son says, what a jerk he is. I can't believe you. And he's like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. He is an idiot. I agree. (sighs) I can hardly believe he's back. Can you imagine the gall of this guy? Come with me. Let's make a show of making him feel welcome. It's the right thing to do. He personally models a heart before his son. He, I thought he was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. I love him. I'm so grateful for him. Won't you please join me in celebrating his turning, his return, his repentance? And so dads, yeah, part of this idea of pursuing the heart of your child is letting them see and have access to your own heart. I think dads, I might be painting with too broad a brush, but I think dads are a little bit more hidden to their children in terms of what's going on in their hearts. I don't know if it's, and again, I might be painting too broad a brush, but in my experience living on planet Earth among other human beings, dads seem to be a little more opaque, a little more stoic, a little less emotive in the main, not always. And so sometimes dad's heart's affections are a mysterious thing to their kids. And it ought not be so. This dad embraced his child, kissed him, celebrated, comes out and makes an appeal to his son. Dads, let your children know what is precious to you, what you celebrate, what you love, what you think is right and good. Don't be a mystery to your kids. And then model that, live as much as you're able to. And again, whenever I come to this point, I want to be careful to say, dads, you don't have to be perfect. (laughs) Uh, We all sin and blow it in many ways. Um, It's just that if you do sin in front of your family, you have to own that. We're not trying to point people to ourselves as paragons of virtue, but we're pointing our children always to our need for a Savior, Jesus. And so, yeah, when you do sin in front of your children, own it. Say, I sinned. I need your forgiveness. And I'm so grateful for Jesus who died for your dad's sins. And I hope you embrace him as your Savior as well. Um, I think a lot of us want to appear perfect to our kids. Um, but in trying to do that, we, we are undermining the perfection of Jesus. Okay. The last thing I want you to see here. This is very closely related to the other. Um, But dads, please see this. This father shows affection for his sons. He doesn't just say um, what he loves. He shows his children affection. He hugs the prodigal son. When he comes out to make his appeal to the older son, he addresses him as son. (laughs) Son. You're mine. I'm your dad. You're my son. He is uh, speaking to the connection that they have. He is 
quick to show affection to his children. And so these are three things I, I, at least I drew out of the parable of the prodigal son this week is dads, make movements towards your sons, even if they be daughters, (laughs) your children. Move towards them, pursue them, take the first step, especially if things are broken and wrong. Be the one to move towards them. If that must begin with confession, do it. Second of all is pursue the heart of your children. Don't fall into the trap. Don't let the dynamic between you and your children just be about compelling behaviors. But foster as much as possible an attitude of worship in your children. Encourage them to operate from the heart. Part of that, of course, will be modeling that personally. And third, do not hesitate to show your children affection. Hug them. Tell them you love them. Welcome them. When they blow it, be quick to extend grace. And just love them. In this, you will be like a living reminder of Jesus in the midst of your own home. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the parable of the prodigal son. Father, we thank you for the tender way that you pursued through Jesus these hard-hearted men and confronted them with a picture of themselves in this oldest brother, that they're angry and outside. And you want them to be filled with joy and right in the heart of the celebration. And Father, whether whether somebody who has been here with us as we've explored this parable this morning is somebody who's far off, lost in their sin, full of needs that they don't have the resources to meet, and they're wondering about maybe coming home. Father, we're thankful for the way that you, our Heavenly Father, received us. Or Father, maybe they have been living righteously, but with the idea that they've been earning something by doing that. And they hate the idea that you would give all of the inheritance of the kingdom to somebody who absolutely does not deserve it, because they think they do. Father, you, t- you speak tenderly to both of these kinds of sons in their error, and you stand ready to receive them both into your house. And Father, we're so grateful for the generous way that you deal with us. Father, thank you for helping us to see ourselves correctly. Help us to see others as you see them. Help us to respond to sin in our own lives with repentance and sin in the lives of others with grace and forgiveness. Father, we want to be like you. And Father, lastly, I just pray for our dads. Father, I thank you for these men, for the servant leaders that they are in their home. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would stir them to higher higher and more obedient ways of living out their calling as dads. God, help us to put on display in the midst of our homes a radical love 
Help us to make you visible to our spouses and our children, our neighbors, our extended families. God, in our calling as fathers, I pray that we would make you visible. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.